Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. This is the Art of the Hustle. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit, co-owner of Powder Mountain, all sorts of other stuff that you probably don't find as interesting in an intro. Uh, I'm very excited to have a dear friend of mine, an amazing poet, beautiful man, Inq, in the studio with me today. Inq is a poet, songwriter, author of the just-released, first time actually his poems have ever been published, Inquire Within, his new book of poetry. Um, welcome to the podcast, Inq. What's Thank up, you, dude? brother. Thank you for having me, man. Of course. Of course. Yeah. I'm a big fan. All your early work, your, your current stuff, everything. Thank you, man. I'm a big fan of you as well, and you know, happy, happy to be chatting with you. Just because I love our conversations, man. Totally. And now, now there's a microphone involved. I think we get to first. create create a bit of content from yeah. it. Yeah. So, so Adam, you know, for those that don't know, InQ is for me, um, you know, what resonates with me, you know, the spoken word poet of our generation. There's others. There's Aja Monet. There's Raphael Casal. For those of you that, you know, throw live events like me and are always looking for people that can inspire in person, in public, Adam is is a gifted once in a generation artist. Thank you, man. I I really appreciate that. That means the world to me. It's true. You are your your art form. I wouldn't say is the, like the most appreciated or commercially celebrated of well, all you the know, art it's, forms. It's on the it's on the come up. Yeah, and when you put a beat behind it, it certainly is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did a song with Zoo. Yeah, you know, you yep. know, called Good Life, and um, you know, people still hit me up all the time, man. He was going to festivals all around the world and they would just like hear my voice blasting out to 20,000 people Mm -hmm. and uh, send me a video about it or something like that, which is always cool. So there's different ways to have my art consumed. Yeah. And uh, each is kind of unique to the information and the genre. Your career primarily is, is an in-person art. It's, it's, you know, the intimate moments where you share your poetry uh, very contextually depending on the group or the place, 
you know, typically, correct? Yeah, I mean, until now, I would say uh, it's been the majority of me showing up, doing my poems, and then disappearing. And in that way, they've always been like living, breathing documents because they've evolved and changed as I've changed over the years. Um, but now uh, that I put all of these pieces into this book, Inquire Within, which is coming out with uh, Harper One, and Harper One's like HarperCollins Spiritual Division. So okay. they do like The Alchemist and right. Four Agreements, a bunch okay. of books that I really love. Um, so creating this was like creating a home for my art and oh. finally having all of my pieces in one place so that people can uh, consume it in a different way. Totally. Yeah. Well, consuming it in the old fashioned way, would you be down to share a poem with our listening audience? Yeah, sure. Life is all about you and not at all about you. Now that's two opposing thoughts, and yet both of them are true. How can we experience everything we choose to do while observing the experience we're having from a higher view? See, it's the question, not the answer, that's the higher you. Otherwise, you couldn't differentiate between the two. Awareness, but of who? I am the journey that I'm getting to. Gratitude is my destination. My destiny is perfectly aligned with this location. I am the map, so my rhymes are like road signs. I have everything I want because my imagination's mine. But mine is not enough for me because I am not my mind. I could see it all and never get to see I'm truly blind. I could be it all, but all identity is intertwined. The moon is only bright when it reflects the sun's shine. And I'm not entirely convinced I even write these lines because my DNA is coded by divine design. But if I manifest abundance while humanity is dying, I am equally responsible for all that I'm denying. See, you can tell the truth and still be lying. I did it for years. My perception was a funhouse mirror. And my projection was exaggerated on reality till my reflection back was nothing more than technicality. So who am I if I'm not who I am? What if I didn't have my name or my age or my friends? If I didn't do my poetry, who would I be then? The things that I've become are not the things I truly am. And everything I think I own owns me in the end. Existence doesn't owe me anything, quite the opposite. Existence will exist long after I am missed, so the art is more important than the artist is. It's not a human race. It's just the human race. There's nothing left to chase. We do not run this place. But both medicine and poison are acquired tastes, so I started taking selfies of somebody else's face. Right before I die, I'm going to tell a joke so that everyone in my bedside can laugh before I croak. Most depart on somber notes, but life is serious enough. And we take our seriousness so serious. For what? Just because we're serious doesn't mean we're tough. It requires more courage to laugh when times get rough. 
Because laughter doubles as an outlet. When energy is stuck, it can disrupt your pattern long enough to shift how you look. And when you shift how you look, you shift how you look. That way people see you differently and it changes shit up. The glass is either half empty or half filled up. I'm just grateful that I have a cup. So many brag about how they don't give a fuck because they have no fucks to give. Me, I give so many fucks that you would think I'd have none left. But my fucks are exponential, so I'll give until my death because I'll have infinite fucks until my very last breath. And that's when I'll tell my joke. Whew. And it will be so good that the waiting room will laugh like they never knew they could. And they'll have to tell their friends. And their friends will laugh too. And pretty soon the whole city will be laughing at the truth. And they'll laugh until they cry. And they'll cry until they scream. And they'll scream until they love. And they'll love until they dream. It was just a little joke. I didn't know what it could mean. It was just a little joke. Now the joke is on me. Because the laughter was contagious. So it spread across the land. My punchline was so outrageous. People couldn't even stand. They started rolling on the floors. They started giving up beliefs. They started begging me for more, but I was already deceased. It didn't matter, rich or poor. Forget the languages they speak because the heart can understand. So it rippled through the streets and they laughed beyond their fears and they laughed beyond their grief and they laughed beyond their wars. They laughed themselves right into peace. We are pieces in the puzzle, but we've never seen the box. We're addicted to the struggle. It's a fucking paradox, but I put that in my joke. So the irony was obvious. A deathbed roast. My clarity was so hilarious that everybody choked. Then they laughed about the choking. It was universal dope that humanity was smoking. They were high on their emotions, overwhelmed by their devotion. They heard the laughter coming from the mountains and the oceans. They heard the laughter coming from the skies and trees. Even the universe was laughing as it fell to its knees. And right then, the laughter stopped. It was almost all at once. At first, it was a shock. The transition was abrupt. But eventually, they settled in, united in their work. They had a lot to do together as they built a better earth. I never saw it happen, but I was praying that it did. I held my wife and kids' hands as I closed my eyelids, and I dreamt about this world and the things we could create if I could find the right joke before my soul evacuates. So I opened up my mouth, but I had nothing left to say. So my joke was in the silence as I slowly slipped away. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> dude, thank you, man. That's yeah, beautiful of course. Poem. Thanks for listening. Really, um, man, it is a paradox. What did it make you think about? Well, many things. I'd like to know. Do you have a deathbed joke? I don't have one yet, but seeing the times that we're living in, I mm -hmm. better find one quick. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Just in case. Yeah. And 
it is such a paradox. And hearing you tell that poem makes me think about, you know, some of the reasons why I love you and enjoy your company so much and value your work. And you're a real peaceful warrior. You're both extremely hard and extremely soft at the same time. Uh, and the paradox of being the only perspective that we'll ever have. So you're the only eyes you'll ever see. You're the most important thing to you that will ever be. And yet there's billions of us today and hundreds of billions in the course of humanity. And we live for just a blink of an eye. So we are both right. completely insignificant and out of control. And yet the only life we'll ever live, you know? Yeah. Um, do you, so I imagine when you write, there's times where you're inspired and there's times where you just don't have it, where these things aren't. Cause I mean, these are absolute truths. It sounds like to you that you put down. They're momentary absolute truths. Yeah. And that's why I was saying earlier that they, you know, at least in the past, they've changed as I've changed, you know? And so sometimes I would edit them or like cut out parts or say, I don't believe in that anymore, you mm -hmm. know, change words, whatever. And, uh, and now this is the first time putting them all into this book. Yeah, I think it made me a better writer because I was forced to edit with the idea of this being around forever. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever forever means. But I mean, I wanted to make sure that whatever I was saying was something to the best of my ability and awareness that I would want to stand behind in 40 years. Yeah. You know? What percentage of the time do you find yourself in the zone and capable of doing your like best work? Or is, so, it, or is it additive? Do you like have an idea and you work on it over time and it's a little bit less intentional? Well, it's all intentional. It's definitely all intentional. Um, but I don't strategize my inspiration. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more in a minute. But I want to say when I was younger and I was putting in my hours, I was obsessed for both good and bad reasons. And I just wrote as much as I possibly could. And then I think you reach a point where you, you've done it so much that you know what your voice is and you can learn other techniques, but you have your style down. And at that point, you know, attempting to write when I'm not inspired is like too much pressure, man. The idea of sitting down at a blank page and being like, I have to come up with something great today without any structure that's overwhelming, man. How long have you been writing? When did you start writing? Uh, I started writing when I was probably 13 or 14. Yeah. Um, and I was just writing raps at the time yeah. and they were horrible. Do you remember any? <laughs> no, but they were horrible. Come on. I know you do. No, I really don't. Okay. But uh, I mean, I, I remember them from high school, from like later in high school. I definitely yeah. had, you know, uh, I made a whole album by the time I was like, 17 years old yeah and you're here in la yeah 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 i was raised in santa monica and um yeah i mean it was my mom a single parent a school teacher and we lived on bay street in lincoln until i was like 12 and then we actually got robbed pretty badly and it was like very specific like they had like beef basically with my mom <laughs> it was like a no way some neighborhood people and so they like it was pretty violent actually they they like cut her clothes and uh graffiti the house and stole everything and you know broke what they didn't steal they dumped water on the couches and we lived in a little you know rent control apartment mm -hmm. and um 
Yeah, and then they broke into the place next door too. It was like a whole thing. Yeah, and uh, the cops weren't doing anything about it, so we ended up uh, moving. Yeah, and I spent the second half of uh, you know my childhood basically like living on the other side of Santa Monica on the border of West LA. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. And at the time that you started writing and chose this sort of passion and path. Was it more of like a, a mental, emotional, creative outlet, or were you like, "This is a way that I can like build a, a living"? Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, be a rapper. I'm gonna like, what was, what, what was in your head at that moment in time when you were like getting into it? Well, I wanted to be a basketball player, okay. of course, like well. like every you <laughs> know, right. Jewish <laughs> young boy, basically, like you know, and then yeah. and then of course you just don't grow, yeah, you know. So, but I, I. Loved Michael Jordan, you know. Michael Jordan was like my hero, man. Mm -hmm. And um, whatever, there's many stories surrounding that, but I won't even get into it. So, so uh, basically, at a certain point, I was like, "Oh, okay, this NBA dream isn't going to happen." Yeah, you know. And uh, at the time, you know, before that, I was just like, "If you work hard enough at something, you can achieve it." And then after that, I was like, "Oh, wow, that's." not true <laughs> well one that was kind of the jordan legend it was like he would get to practice two hours right. early he wasn't good he would just sleeping like, with his basketball yeah, you know, exactly. whatever you know so i was doing all that stuff of and course of course that didn't affect my dna yes right so like it, i i didn't grow i didn't get strong enough you know i was yeah. like i was like the best kid in whatever it was like the the middle league at boys club yeah you know on yeah. my team yes. like if 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 we were down by two, I had the ball, yeah. you know? And then of course I went up to like the good league and people were like dunking and like, yeah. I was just a garbage, like bench warmer, like no matter how hard I worked. So I think after that, I was actually, to be honest, a little bit disappointed because I was like, wow, I worked so hard to do it. And it's still just, it doesn't happen. It was like that early realization that Sometimes things just don't happen, no matter how much energy you put into it. And then when I fell in love with hip hop a few years later, um, and like started freestyling, which was a meditation for me at the time, it wasn't like a, I wasn't aware of that. You know, it's not like I was cool at all at that point to know, oh, this is like an outlet for all the unresolved thoughts and emotions that I can't get out of my system. Yeah, It was just something that I was drawn to, but it really was because as a meditation, you're dropped into the moment. And when you're freestyling, as you know, you can't think about anything but the next word and the next rhyme. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of puts you there, which was a really beautiful escape for me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then I, I remember when I started to really take it seriously, I remember thinking, well, nothing physical can stop me from doing this because yeah. it's in my mind. And I was like, if it's in my mind, then I can turn this into a reality. And I think that's when I started taking it seriously. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. 
And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing In Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When did you get your first sort of external validation that you're, you're, you were a good writer, you were a good poet? Um, I mean, I was definitely like battling people, yeah. you know, like not on a regular basis, but there was definitely a lot of battles that I was a part of and, um, and some, they were large ciphers yeah. where people, you know, a lot of people were there. Some, it was just me and the MC or five other people. And some were on stage, yeah. you know, in front of 200 people or something like that. And like eight mile. Yeah. I mean, whatever version of that I lived. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I never got to see it with my own eyes. That's the only yeah. like, like, you know, reference it's, it's your life. It's amazing. And it's, and it's more, it sounds like it's more prevalent as a scene than people realize is like this sort of up and coming underground hip hop culture naturally. I mean, everybody was, was rhyming at that point. So you yeah. would battle people at, you know, high school, you would battle people leaving, you would battle people in my neighborhood. I've, I've battled people in on my neighborhood before too. Like, yeah. you just do it. Like, Crazy. you know, so, and, uh, and it was beautiful. It was, it was a sense of freedom, man. Yeah. Like to be celebrated for that. It was, yeah, it's like winning a, winning a mental fight or something like that. It was a really cool experience. Yeah. 
In uh, and do you know like Somalia? They would call themselves the land of warriors and poets. Mm. Do you know this Mm-mm. history? They would essentially like work out their their beefs, their their tribal beefs, with like the best poet freestylists in the tribe, and they Got would it. like hit each other. I mean, and I haven't. I'm not a historian. I haven't verified this. This is like a. <laughs> this is like a. Saw guy canon fact, got it, but got it, it came out when he said it. It sounded yeah. really convincing, and I well, it resonated. It. It's beautiful. Yeah, like what an idea! It's like, all right, we're gonna handle our beef not by getting physical with one another, but by like you know swagger and articulation of a point of view. That's well, pretty. I was just in India, and uh, we were really lucky. It was a group of like thirty people, and we ended up getting a chance to spend time with the Dalai Lama, mm-hmm. and um, it was at the first monastery. Uh, that was created after he was exiled uh, from Tibet. Mm -hmm. And um, they had this huge, huge celebration. So it was basically like us, 30 Westerners or whatever, then a few stragglers, and then like thousands and thousands of monks. Mm -hmm. And um, we were invited to sit in on all these sacred ceremonies. And one of the ceremonies that they had on a daily basis is that these younger monks would practice... uh, a subject and then come up and debate. And it didn't matter that I didn't understand the language. I was watching them and I was literally thinking they're battle rapping. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it, they're, the, the use of their bodies, yeah. the use of their intonation, the emphasis, the volume. Yeah. And all it was, was them taking two sides of a spiritual conversation yeah. and debating back and forth on it. And, uh, and I, I thought it was really beautiful. I, th- I think it's a beautiful ritual and, um, you know, certainly, certainly something I relate to, you know? Yeah. There's like a Rene Girard school of thinking, uh, you know, this idea of mimetic violence, hmm. you know, so like the, the way that things evolve is through sort of combat and mimetic, like, uh, uh debate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we see ourselves as enemies, but we're on the two sides of the same river, you know, cheering for each one of our canoeing teams. We know the same facts about the same thing. Mm. And yet we think that we're enemies. Right. Where in reality, we have everything in common. I'm a Pats fan. I'm a Jets fan or something, you know, right. but in reality, like we are totally, you know, um, on the same path. And, and the thing is evolving um, and getting to the best outcome through that, uh, that combat of ideas. So like mm-hmm. you're very close with my co-founder, Elliot yeah. is now at summit and Elliot and I have pretty um, opposing viewpoints at the mm. beginning in certain ways of thinking. And now we we obviously heighten that because like we're constantly building together and mm-hmm. sort of our definition of each other. If you met us both, you'd be like, those guys are just the same, you know, and you're, you know, but anyway, I, I, I think that when I look at, you know, the outcomes of those debates, it ends up being, you know, some of the best work that we've ever done is when, you know, uh, and, and it's not just the two of us, there's, we have a very flat organization. We try to like encourage, you know, everyone capable of, of offering their sort of impassioned view, like, you know, in theos is with God, right. The root Mm -hmm. of enthusiasm. Like if you're enthusiastic and passionate, if you have a real point of view, please, by all means, correct us. Right. But, um, you know, it's, I never thought about sort of the, the deepening of meaning of what was going on in a battle rap to this degree before. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, you guys created that fire from the friction and it, it would not be as hot as it was had you not had those opposing viewpoints and, um, you know, on specific things and then in general. And it actually has made Summit what it is up until uh, this day and and will 
from here into the future. So uh, I think there's something really special about that. And I, I think there's something really special about having disagreeing uh, arguments, viewpoints, whatever, and then, but respecting the person. Because otherwise you can never really hear what they say. And I write about that in the book. I mean, there's a difference between ideas and ideologies. You know, ideas are tools that you can use in your life that will change as your truth and your experience changes. But ideologies become part of your identity. And if an ideology is a part of your identity, then for you to change your mind means a part of you has to die. I mean, it's a really deep kind of concept. And that's why people so, they, they hold so tight to the things that they believe. And they don't actually allow someone else's viewpoint to possibly shift them. And the thing is, is it doesn't have to shift you. You don't have to make a different decision or believe anything different. But it is important to respect the person that's in front of you because then you can have shared ideas and shared action. Well, and if you look at nature, the, the things that go the furthest and live the longest um, aren't the strongest. It's those that are most uh, uh, flexible mm. and, and ready for change. Right. And so you're saying that, you know, and I, and part of it is being, being willing to let those pieces of yourself die. Like, do you think that if by acknowledge, do you think by acknowledging that it's that serious of a conversation with yourself, does that, is that opened you up further? Like, how did you, how did you go from, you know, it sounds like it's purely a, the better of philosopher you are in a sense, the better of a poet you are. So you're, you have to sharpen the edge of your own experience on your life, whether it's sadness or loss or, mm. you know, like what, what has enabled you to become exceptional at this? Like, how have you, you know, you talk about being able to, you know, lose a piece of yourself and redefine who you are. How did you do that for yourself to, to do what you do? What, say the last thing again, lose a piece of myself, but redefine, you mean- you were, like, You're open to being a, a beautiful poet and a deep human being and le leaning into all these life experiences so you can then put them into words for us, right? Like, like how, have you, how did you unlock this for yourself? How did you feel so deeply? How did you give yourself permission to go here at first? Well, I think, you know, like anything else, you know, you were talking about enthusiasm earlier. You follow the path and the path will lead the way, yeah. you know? So I think- the path is your enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, and I, so I think first just paying attention to the things that you're enthusiastic about. Um, you know, a lot of people are like, I don't know what my purpose is. You know, I don't know what my purpose is. I'm like, okay, well then what's your passion? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know what my passion is. Okay. Well, what are you enthusiastic about? Mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm enthusiastic about. Okay. Well, what are you fascinated by i don't know what are you interested in i don't know what are you curious about i mean everybody's curious about something just take it down to the smallest step forward that you can take mm -hmm. and then that's like a breadcrumb trail you don't have to know where it's going to go just just moving forward is the thing you know the the journey is the destination so um i think I followed my enthusiasm originally with hip hop. Then it, it led me to uh, an open mic for poets when I was 19 years old called the Poetry Lounge. Yeah. Which, um, you know, it's church without religion, man. Mm -hmm. It was the most amazing environment that, you know, in terms of an artistic community that I've ever been a part of. That was my college. Yeah. 
you know, I didn't, I didn't go to college. I went to San Fran State for a year, fucked off, came back to LA, went to SMC for, like, I don't even know if it was six months, dude. And then I got in a fist fight on campus. I was miserable. I was like, not, a, like, I wasn't happy being there. Mm -hmm. I was like in the remedial math class and mm -hmm. I just hated it, you know? And, and I just was like, I'm out of here, dude. And I just ended up at that poetry lounge, like, and I loved it, man. I, I signed up on the list and I was doing my rapping acapella and people just responded. And that community became a family. We won mm -hmm. the National Poetry Slam championships together. You know, I was on HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam with yeah. a lot of my friends. And and then I kind of realized, oh, I'm more of a poet than I am an MC. And then I had to figure out how to monetize it. But that was, that was the beginning of my journey. And I wanted to ask you about that. Cause that whole phase where it's like, you're starting to get like, you're on HBO, you're like, you're like getting, you're winning national, you know, accolades for, for poetry now and for spoken word, but it's not a business yet. It's no. like, you're, you know, hand to mouth, correct. At that stage of your career. A hundred percent. And most of the people that I was around were, um, kind of you know, hodgepodging their monetary situation together as well. Well, and you did too. You became a songwriter. Like you've written a number of hits, correct? Rock yeah. Right. So rock mafia. No. Yeah. So rock, rock mafia okay. is the place that I got the publishing deal with. Got and it. then we made, I mean, Miley Cyrus, Selena Gomez, yeah. foster the people, Alo yeah. black. I've done like 40 Disney songs. I had yeah. two, two gold records last year <laughs> from the descendants three, Yeah, you know, like uh very, stuff that at the time at least on the pop side of things felt almost sacrilegious to me yeah. because of uh what i always wanted for myself as an artist mm -hmm. but even that was was an absolute gift not only financially because it gave me the freedom to pursue my poetry with yeah. uh, consciousness yeah. you know like an intention mm -hmm. that word that we were talking about earlier but uh also i became a better artist yeah. Because when you're forced to write from your imagination, you know, you, first of all, get outside of your own truth. Yeah. But you still bring it mm -hmm. to whoever it is that you're writing for. Yeah. And then secondly, like, you know, these songs are very round. Uh, the syllables are round. You have to fit a deep concept into a very simple sentence. Like a haiku. Yes, exactly. Pop songwriting is like haikus. It's exactly what it is. Yeah. And and so even in, in that, sometimes it's the way it sounds is more important than the way or what it says. So there's a lot of things I learned in songwriting yeah. that was different than this choppy rhythmic thing that I was doing for my poetry. And then when I went back to my poetry, I had more tools to use in my toolbox. Yeah. So it was like all of a sudden I became a better poet by being a songwriter. Um. So that was an absolute gift, but I didn't even start doing that until I was past 30, man. I mean, I wasn't making, I was making just enough to get by Yeah. from, you know, 18 or 19 until, you know, past 30. Mm -hmm. And then what was the big breakthrough? Like what, what now I know that you like, you know, have a real business as a poet, yeah. not just your book, not just inquire within, but you know, like you are one of the most sought after sort of public speakers that I know of, you know, you're, you're constantly around the world, whether it's like, you know, festivals or cultural, uh, happenings also Davos or summit yeah. or, you know, world, like all this crazy stuff. So, um, what was the breakthrough for you? How did you take this? Like, you know, and it, and your industry didn't exactly follow suit. Like I know, you yeah. know, other poets who are wonderfully talented, who's, you know, 
it didn't end up happening this way for them. Yeah, I, I don't know whether that was a, a choice or it was just um, based on where the genre was and, and still is in many ways. Yeah. I mean, I believe in poetry. I think some of the best art experiences I've ever had were sitting in the audience watching other poets on stage, you know? Um, and so I think that this art form makes people feel less alone. I think that it, you know, creates empathy. And I think empathy is what the world needs most right now. So I'm proud uh, to be on my wave and I'm very, very supportive of any other poets who are doing anything to further the art form because I want little kids to be like, I want to be a poet when I grow up. You know, I want River to be like, man, I want to, you know, so I think. Well, uh, me, me too. Like yeah. I, I, I do too. And, you know, I don't know, like when I think about sport too, I'm like, mm -hmm. man, like, uh, you know, I, I try, I wanted to be a professional soccer player as a mm -hmm. kid and like played in college and you all were this competitive. stuff. competitive, yeah. Very competitive. Yeah. And I'm paying for it now. Like, right. you know, I have to do a lot more body work and, you know, physical maintenance at 35 than I would have, I imagine, if I hadn't been like throwing my body around like right. such a, but that was also me. Right. Like, there's different ways you can do it. So I'm like, man, I hope he does all this stuff recreationally. Right. You know, I would love nothing more than for him to have a, a, a passion for poetry yeah. and to be able to do it. Um, when you think about your children, uh, are you like, man, I hope that my kid is a professional poet. Do you uh, think like, do you think he'll love that? Or, or I think it's easy for me to do that generally with like inspiring other people's kids. Yeah. But if, if when I have kids, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm excited for that. Stage. Hypothetically, hypothetically, yeah. I wouldn't want to specify anything for yeah. the, the imaginary kid that's to come because, uh, it, you know, it's like, I wrote this in the book, defining myself is like confining myself, mm -hmm. you know, so I undefined myself to find myself. I think it's some, something similar there with kids, because as we were talking about earlier, they, they not only teach us a lot, a lot of it is already there, Yeah, you know? And, and so I would just want to give enough structure and enough space simultaneously to let them find themselves and give them as many positive examples as I can and yeah. cultural experiences. That was kind of a total non sequitur that I just pulled this into. Um, but you know, it's all good. I like, I want to flip us just as quickly and abruptly. Okay. Some other questions I have for you. I'm not even sure I answered your other question. I don't, I don't think don't you did either. I remember what it was. Yeah. You know, but it's all good. And I actually do remember your other question. Your question was, how did I make a business out of it? Yeah. And, uh, I was just doing, you know, shows, public shows all around Los Angeles for a really long time. And so I think after I had that financial freedom and started to have more connections, I was uh, kind of willing to go places that I wouldn't have gone in the past. And I remember being at the studio. And so Aloe Black called me. And this does connect directly to Summit because I think this was a part of my path, you know. I mean, it was. I don't think. I know that it was a part of my path. Aloe called me and I was... Um, did you write music with him or was he a, uh, was he a hip hop artist or something before? Alo and I just oh. knew each other. Okay. Just you know, a friend. yeah. Like I loved his music and yeah. he was, I think a fan of my poetry and then we became friends. And so, um, we were writing a little bit together at the time. And, and so I'm at, uh, rock mafia and I was writing a Disney song at the time. And literally he calls me and he goes, yo, you should come to this thing. You know, uh, I'm performing there over the weekend called summit. Did I ever tell you this? Mm. Yeah. So he's like, come to this thing. It's a dope community. It's in Utah. And uh, you can perform in my set. 
And I think it'll be like really positive for you. And I said, okay, cool. How much do they pay? And he goes, they're not paying. But he said, they'll get you out there. And I almost said no. I was like, no was coming out of my mouth. And then I thought, yeah, you know, this is Aloe, man. If Aloe thinks I should do something, I should do something. I was like, I know I have to finish this song, but whatever, the song will get done. I'll just, you know. So I said, all right, man. And I went. And that was a huge turning point because it opened me up to not only a new network of people, um, but it also opened me up to the idea of infinite possibilities. That was something I really took away from, you know, and continue to take away from my experiences and my relationships that I've created at Summit is uh, that anything is possible, you know, and to think big, you know, and to be solution-minded rather, rather than problem-oriented. Mm -hmm. And so I remember I performed on the first night at one of the dinners. And, um, and so I finished and we sat down to eat and it was me and Aloe and his wife, Maya, and a table full of people. And it was 250 people in, at the lake house, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm like sitting there and everybody's like congratulating me. And I'm like, thank you. And I was still pretty closed off at the time, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm like talking to this, this dude next to me and halfway through the meal, I'm like, what do you do by the way? And he goes, uh, he goes, I run uh, PR for all of Cirque du Soleil. And I was like, oh, wow, that's fucking, that's cool, man. You know? Mm -hmm. And then I said, well, what do you do? <laughs> the other guy. And he was like, oh, you know, I, uh, I run this shoe company called Creative Recreations. And I was like, oh man, I was like, I like your shoes, man. <laughs> yeah. And then I said, what do you do? And she's like, Oh, I managed John Legend. And I was like, where the fuck am I right now? Like literally like in the middle of you, it was really kind of like my mind was, was blown. And, uh, so th that was a big thing. And then when I got my manager, Kevin Hackmet, um, who kind of came on and helped me really build the business around what I was doing, mm -hmm. I said to him right up front, I was like, I don't want to be a corporate poet. And I was like, I'm happy to perform anywhere, but I want to make sure that I'm keeping my artistic integrity and so we were able to do both of those simultaneously. And now, you know, I do 70 shows a year mm -hmm. around the country and the world doing uh, keynote speeches and workshops. Yeah. Um, and I absolutely love it, man. I'm, I'm really feeling like I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Art of the Hustle will be right back after this short break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters, the theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app 
Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Cannot believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think like part of your, you know, not yours personally, but generally speaking, a lot of like great art comes from pain. Right. Mm. It comes from expressing something, um, you know, that, that was, you know, either depression or pain, like a lot of, we all go through it. Like yeah. everybody has like, you know, and, uh, and I find that, you know, often artists are those that had to deal with it the, in the deepest fashion. And I know you personally certainly had like, you know, you were unhappy, as you said, like when you're in high school and you're in college and single parent household and all this stuff, how, and, and how did you, and I know you converted it, right? Like you, you figured out how to take that anxiety and anger and convert it into humor mm-hmm. and passion. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember any like moments in time or any, like, you know, any of these shifts that occurred for you at that, at that moment? Um, in terms of the alchemy of taking pain and turning it into to art. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely unconscious at the beginning. Um, and, uh, you know, look, man, when you fall in love with something, and I mean anything, it's pure. At the very beginning, it's always pure. And then it gets co-opted by our egos, you know, and the validation and the success. And, um, you know, you're never going to get rid of your ego. Your ego is a part of your humanity. It's a part mm-hmm. of the human experience. But you can learn how to be aware of it so that you're not operating from that place. Um, and I think at a certain point I realized that my fuel source had been co-opted and I was kind of looking for a certain amount of self-worth through my art or perpetuating some of the old stories that I was telling. Um, and in that way I was exacerbating my pain rather than integrating it and alchemizing it. So I made a choice at a certain point to change my fuel source 
because I knew it was unsustainable. Mm. Um, and I remember the story. I mean, it was, I write about this in the book too. I literally like came home and like I had a bad breakup that I was going through and I was like thinking, I need to write my new breakup poem. You know, I was like gonna write my breakup poem. The artist, the suffering artist, you know? Mm -hmm. And I get home and I go, you know, maybe I should read through my old breakup poems first before I write this new one. So I'm embarrassed to admit but there were nine of them. Mm -hmm. It's not nine different women. <laughs> Some were doubled up, but it was nine different poems, which yeah. is almost 30 minutes of material about relationships that hadn't worked out. That's fucking crazy, right? So yeah. now I'm sitting down and I read all this material in a row out loud to myself in like my dimly lit apartment, you know? And uh, when I finished, I was like, oh, okay. I was like, I don't need to write a new breakup poem. I was like, all of my old breakup poems are applicable to my current breakup. Yeah. So I need to figure out why I'm continuing to create the same lesson in a different disguise over and over and over again. And that was, I think, at least the pivotal point that stood out to me to realize that I didn't want to be uh, retelling this old story to myself mm. over and over again about the suffering and the pain and the starving artist and the angry, you know, I had all these stories about my life that I think I was just recreating unconsciously. And from that point on, I said, you know, I'm always going to create from my pain. I'm not going to ignore it, but I'm going to make sure that I wind up in hope mm -hmm. and an empowerment for whoever it is that's listening to me. And first and foremost for myself. Yeah. That's awesome, man. You had an answer. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's such a beautiful way of seeing that. Um, I had a couple other interesting questions, but none are, none are coming to mind right now. What do you want to ask me? Um, how do you alchemize your pain? Cause you, you know, you said something yeah. to me one time that was actually super interesting to me. Yeah. You said, you know, people's minds are like an amusement park or a haunted house. Interesting. And I loved that image. I always thought that would be a cool way to start a poem, you know, because it is so specific. Cause yeah. I, when you said that, I went, oh, I'm a haunted house. Yeah. And now I'm not quite an amusement park. But I'm definitely not a haunted house. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm like I'm reconstructing, but <laughs> totally. I'm with you it. Know? I think I think we harness uh the energy that we have. We just are always making the best of what we have in front of us. You know what I mean? Like, you know, doing the best you can with what you have. And if you have, you know, hyperactivity and you know, you know, the serotonin and dopamine that's flying around in there and you're you're like like me, I'm I'm you know kind of always running for mayor of nowhere and <laughs> making new friends everywhere I go. Right. And, you know, I have a lot of energy for the projects that I'm working on. And like, so for me, like I actually am served by, you know, um, finding practices that bring me more grounded and more patient and mm -hmm. slow me down. And I make wiser choices. Like I don't need to hustle anymore. What are your practices very, for that? Uh, I have a ton. Um, I mean, like, uh, I, I try to walk a lot and mm -hmm. walk slowly um, throughout my day, I meditate. I have a stillness coach, which is also kind of a form of meditation here what in is LA. The stillness coach. It's kind of like, it's more of a physical, uh, meditation around and sort of almost per, like self hypnotism 
around uh, pushing all your thoughts out of your mind and expanding the physical space of your of your skull, of your head. Mm. Um, and so there's this guy, Jim George, here in LA. He's great. And he like talks you into it and walks you through it. But I'd say even before any of that, like that's the day-to-day practices. I could give you five or six others. More than that, I think it was the realization that I was going to have a kid, sure. and uh, and and ultimately, like being stuck in places with my with my enterprise, where it was like, man, like I've been doing the same thing for a long time. Like, how can I learn a new way to go about doing this that is exponential in its scale? Like, if mm-hmm. you're the limiter of the of the scale of your movement. Um, the beautiful thing about, you know, poetry in a book or, you know, a record uh, versus just a live musical performance is that you can be playing a million places around the world at the same mm, time. Right. right? Exactly. Um, so in an, in an enterprise, like I was key manning all this stuff. So one, it doesn't give, you know, the people that I work with a place to grow. Right. right? Like they don't have the self-definition around their department or their area of focus if it's mine. Um, so they don't have the same incentivization or like, you know, call the action to grow. Um, and I'm stuck sort of doing the same thing. So I was comfortable sucking kind of at work for like six to eight months. Um, and I just sort of got, I accepted it. It was like, you know, the tools that got me here aren't going to be the things that'll get me there. So. Right. People you know, think that you, you know, that a transition is immediate Yeah, and it's not there. That's why they call it a transition period. First of all, it takes time to become aware that you even want to transition, you know, because yeah. what you've been doing has worked to yeah. get you somewhere. Mm-hmm. So you have to go, oh, something's not right to realize that you want to transition somewhere else or in a new way. Then you have to figure out how you're going to do that. And then you have to learn how to do that. So it, it takes a while. But, so but like, once the search is in progress, something will always be found. For sure. You know, that's Brian, you know, oblique strategies. But, uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, I think, yeah, that's, that's for me also just experience. Like once you've done it enough times, you've gone through challenging experiences and gotten to the, the side of hope, mm-hmm. like you described, um, you know, you, you realize that it's not going to kill you. Most likely it's not going to be the, the end of everything. Look, a pandemic will kill you. Like cancer will kill you. Right. An ego blow because a business is going to fail will not kill you. You know what I mean? A, a relationship, even if you absolutely love this person and you think it is, you know, a tear in the universal order that you're not going to be their partner, mm-hmm. it's not going to kill you. It's right. probably going to help you. Right. It's going to, you know, for for my biggest mistakes or areas of of uh, growth are the places that show me like where I'm exposed, where I need growth, like where I where I can lean into. And it always has a return on all the other areas of my life. Yeah. And I think, I mean, and you know, if you want to talk about the, the pandemic, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it, for an individual usually to make a systemic change in their life, you know, to really like acknowledge that how they're living is not the way that they either thought they were living or want to be living or mm-hmm. both. Right. Usually it's some sort of a feeling of, discomfort or suffering or something traumatic happens and they kind of wake up and they have a window of time within waking up to make real changes. And if they do make those real changes, then their life changes. And if they don't, they lull themselves back to sleep. And sometimes it can take people 10 more years to have an opportunity to wake up again. Mm -hmm. And I think that an individual is the same thing as a collective. 
And so I think that's what's happening right now. You know, uh, and I'm not disregarding the suffering that is happening or the suffering that will happen from uh, from the virus. But what I am saying is, ultimately, it's a traumatic event mm -hmm. for humanity to have the opportunity to wake up and decide, is what we've been doing going to take us into the future that we want? Mm -hmm. Because what we're doing is is unsustainable. I mean, just the profiting off of the suffering of people and the planet, you know, it has real consequences and the consequences land at our doorstep first. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Facts. I agree. Well, when, when I think about, you know, what separated, you know, uh, myself, like I'm not, you know, especially talented in many different aspects of like business or, uh, or art, but, you know, I've, I've managed to, to get myself to a place that I'm very, very grateful for where I get to express through all these different mediums. Mm. Um, a huge piece of it, maybe the biggest piece is, uh, is my ability to articulate myself. Mm. And you, like you said, that freestyle, like being confident and comfortable and just, and, and, and we just have many people aren't right. Like they, you know, have to prepare a lot for the, the speeches that they give, right. um, you know, and, and there's a lot of anxiety around, you know, public speaking or expressing our own original ideas or just that fear of judgment. Um, you know, like for you, what, what are there some practices that you have or some ways of thinking that you think would benefit our listeners? Um, look, I think, you know, <laughs> when it comes to teaching art, for example, and I said, my mom's a school teacher, you know, so I have great respect for teachers, great respect for art teachers, but no one can teach you what your voice is. Your voice comes from, using it from experiencing it. So they can teach you techniques. They can teach you tools. They can give you a platform to explore your voice. And all those things are fantastic, but really you're going to learn what your style is by doing it. And you can also become, you can get farther from your voice actually, if you get too locked into what other people's styles are, you know, because really that truth that comes out of you, that can express itself in any genre of art is yours. And you have a very special story to tell, whatever it is. And I'm not just saying that as conjecture. Every single person is a fucking miracle, man. It's a miracle that you're on the planet. And we all have different circumstances and different details, but the human condition is the same. And for you to describe your human condition through your voice in any genre is an absolute service to the world. So, you know, don't judge yourself or at least don't judge yourself for judging yourself and just do it. You know, like yeah. literally whatever it is, we're all poets, we're all storytellers and you can't, you know, it's like you can't intellectualize your boundaries. You can't theorize your boundaries. You have to experience your boundaries. You have to crash up against them to know that they exist. And then you go, okay, well, <laughs> let me make some changes here. It's, it's the same thing, you know? So you can't theorize or intellectualize your art. You just have to do it. Mm -hmm. Get dirty, you know, make mistakes, you know, get up and like you said, fail, fall flat on your face and realize that it is not um, a reflection of your self-worth as a human being. Because the more that you don't look to the outside world for your validation of your self-worth, the more you can actually communicate your truth. And your truth is the thing that's gonna resonate. Not what you want your truth to be, 
not what you think your truth should be, not what other people think your truth should be, but what your truth is in this moment, it will resonate. And if it doesn't, then they're probably fucking assholes anyway. <laughs> yeah. But you have you know? to know what you like. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with it. Um, well, I want you to take us out with a poem if you're open to it. Yeah. And before that, I, you know, I, I want just again to be practical, um, you know, for my own interests as well. Like if I want to, you know, start writing poetry, if I want to take the first step in expressing myself in this way, how do I do it? What do I do? So for you, yeah, right. I would say what is moving and meaningful to you. Yeah. And the first thing that I would think is if you sat down and you wrote a poem about you figuring out how to be a father with river, mm -hmm. what you were kind of discussing earlier, that that's been on your mind and on your heart, mm -hmm. the poem will start to flow immediately. And I think that's often the biggest thing is people overcomplicate their art. You just have to choose something that's actually on your mind and on your heart, something that's moving and meaningful to you, and then create the time and the space to do it. And then when you're finished doing it and don't overthink it. It's the same, like for you, like when you get up and you express yourself and you are so eloquent. I mean, you've said things like the haunted house thing that stayed with me in a passing moment in a passing conversation. So you have the ability to use language and to articulate your ideas. But I think sometimes maybe when you get to a page, you could have a tendency of needing for it to be great and getting in your own way. If it's true, it's great. You know, don't worry about great or good or it's just worry about true and real and authentic. Mm -hmm. And then the full circle for you or anyone who's listening is to share it. You know, so you could sit with Julia and, and, and say, I want to read you this poem, you know, and, and you, you have to read it to someone. It could be a, somebody you want to get to know more. It could be me. You can call me up, but it has to be someone because there is something to be said for being witnessed and being accepted you know and that's why when i do the workshops it's only positive constructive loving caring feedback mm -hmm. and you can set up those parameters before you read it to that person but reading it is important because then you're getting it out of your system and you have some separation between you and your story through the trojan horse of the poem mm. And, uh, you know, you can find more freedom that way. All right. Well, I'm going to try it. I'm going to do it. Great. I'll hit you up. Please do. I'm write a poem. Fantastic. I'm ready. I've never done it. Amazing. All right. Well, Adam, thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate you being on the podcast. Really appreciate everybody listening. And uh, you got anything in mind to take us out on? Yeah, I'll definitely, uh, I'll definitely do a poem to take us out on. But thank you for having me. I appreciate you. You know, I appreciate our friendship and I've enjoyed this conversation. And anybody who uh, wants to get the book Inquire Within, you know, you can go to my website, ian-q.com. Uh, and if you hit me up on social media, it's at inqlife. And let me know that you bought the book and let me know what you think about it. Um, I want to want to spread the poetry far and wide. There is nothing in life that you cannot breathe through except death. And since we're all alive, it means at least there's one breath left. So pull it deep into your chest 
into your bones, into your breasts, into your blood, into the neck, into your mud, into your depth, until it hugs your souls and suffocates the space that you have left, until it tugs your heartstrings and leaves your molecules caressed. Just a few precious seconds right before eternal rest. Will you fight for your survival from this uninvited guest? Will you Rolodex your history to glamorize regrets or set your sights on new arrival and go sprinting up the steps. Me, I'll revel in the wonder of the colors and the shapes. The way the light resembles floating diamonds dancing on the lake. I am nobody's mistake. But my existence wasn't planned. I had to sneak into the party. They were out of wristbands. Now I'm sinking towards the exit like it's made of quicksand. See, I got used to spinning my wheels but hit the kickstand. I want to truly view the world around me while I still can. I want to worship every flower giving prayers over the land. I want to open up my eyes so wide that what I see expands and the beauty beams so bright it overwhelms woman and man. Fuck a portal to the light. I want to scream. I want to fight. I want to eat and fucking drink. I want to touch. I want to think. I want to feel and taste and see. I want to live. I want to be. And I'd give anything but life because I'm dying to be me. I spent half my life trying to be anything but me. Now my afterlife is spying on my new reality. And I'm vying for another breath before he sets me free. I'm defying death with everything because death's defying me. I will rant. I will rave. I will spit. I will rage. I'll go barefoot on the sun or swim a sea of razor blades. I will grow. I will age. I will slow. I will fade, I'll sleep on hot coals or juggle chainsaws and live grenades. And though I know I'll never give up, in the end I'll give way. Hey, I'm sure there's someone else with something more important to say. But until then, I'm living each and every fucking day. So when I take a breath, I do it like I swear I'm here to stay. Learned fear can be overcome when you realize the voice inside your head is not yours. It's an imitation of the voices from before repeating on a loop inside your quiet core, receiving since your youth when your choices weren't even yours. Perceiving was the proof, but reality has many doors, so why are we still fighting other people's wars? Learned fear can be overcome when you realize the voice inside your head is not yours. It's an imitation of the voices from before, repeating, repeating, repeating on a loop inside your quiet core. And you can't tell the difference because it sounds the same. But trust me when I tell you most of what you think is from somebody else's brain. They have us trained, shackled by imaginary chains, imaginary rules for imaginary games. But they don't know the reasons either. So where should we place the blame? And who is they anyway when we're all the same? Our parents had parents and their parents had parents. Apparently it hurts to see so I'll be transparent. The world is so much bigger than your insecurities. And they don't speak on your behalf without your soul's authority. The world is so much bigger than our culture or community, and they don't speak on your behalf without your soul's authority. 
Because if it's all a story, then nobody else can tell it for me. Since I'm always transforming, I defy a category. When you do the same thing the same way, it's habit forming. But nothing in this land of woman and man is mandatory. It's all just transitory. Our world's a laboratory. Experimenting on today can change tomorrow morning. And since matter is mostly empty space, we're in a sea of consciousness where the boundaries are erased. So I stared at my reflection until I couldn't see my face. Then I picked myself and put the flowers in an empty vase. If you came for validation, then you're in the wrong place. The only certain satisfaction is becoming what you've chased. And there's no running from the inner voice. So it's important that you choose. But it's more important that you know you have a choice. You have a choice. Are you living someone else's life? You have a voice. Does it haunt you in the dead of night? Would you fly if you weren't convinced to be afraid of heights? And who convinced you anyway? They had no fucking right. No one can dim your light. You shine within so bright that you could blind the sun from sight and scare him back into the night. No one can dim your light. I said it twice because you're greater than the circumstances that surround your perfect life. You're not your nature or your nurture. You're a prototype. And if you hone it right, eventually you'll hack your satellite. At first it's nothing. Then nothing turns into a whisper. Turn the dial and it gets crisper in your transistor. Wait a while, and the whisper turns into a scream. It overwhelms your system, and you won't know what it means. But pump the volume up, and it can tell you all your dreams. Till pretty soon, it's the only voice you'll ever need. Now all you have to do is listen when you want to lead. Your fear disintegrates when you decide to stop and breathe. It's your authentic voice. No matter where you go, it never leaves. And that's God, no matter what religion you believe. I'm starting my own religion. And everyone is welcome. But nobody can join. If you did, you'd miss the point. Thank you, NQ. Man, beautiful. Thank you for being on the podcast. Your hustle has a lot of art. You're a beautiful man. Mostly inside, but outside too. Mutual. Thanks, dude. Thanks, man. Thank you guys for listening. We see things not as they are, but as we are. Hopefully we can all work to articulate ourselves more and with greater ability like our man in Q. Thanks again. Have a beautiful day. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards 
like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. 